Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Queen of Spades by Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin At the house of Narumov, a cavalry officer, the long winter night had been passed in gambling. At five in the morning, breakfast was served to the weary players. The winners ate with relish. The losers, on the contrary, pushed back their plates and sat brooding gloomily. Under the influence of the good wine, however, the conversation then became general. Well, Surin, said the host inquiringly. Oh, I lost as usual. My luck is abominable. No matter how cool I keep, I can never win. How is it, Herman, that you never touch a card, remarked one of the men addressing a young officer of the engineering corps. Here you are with the rest of us at five o'clock in the morning, and you have neither played nor bet all night. Play interests me greatly, replied the person addressed, but, but I hardly care to sacrifice the necessaries of life for uncertain superfluities. Herman is a German, therefore economical, that explains it, said Tomsky. But the person I can't quite understand is my grandmother, the Countess Anna Fedorovna. Why? inquired a chorus of voices. I can't understand why my grandmother never gambles. I don't see anything very striking in the fact that a woman of eighty refuses to gamble, objected Narumov. Have you never heard her story? No. Well, then listen to it. To begin with, sixty years ago my grandmother went to Paris, where she was all the fashion. People crowded each other in the streets to get a chance to see the Muscovite Venus, as she was called. All the great ladies played faro then. On one occasion, while playing with the Duke of Orleans, she lost an enormous sum. She told her husband of the debt, but he refused outright to pay it. Nothing could induce him to change his mind on the subject, and my grandmother was at her wit's end. Finally, she remembered a friend of hers, Count Saint-Germain. You must have heard of him, as many wonderful stories have been told about him. He is said to have discovered the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, and many other equally marvellous things. He had money at his disposal, and my grandmother knew it. She sent him a note, asking him to come to see her. He obeyed her summons and found her in great distress. She painted the cruelty of her husband in the darkest colours, and ended by telling the Count that she depended upon his friendship and generosity. "'I could lend you the money,' replied the Count, after a moment of thoughtfulness. "'But I know that you wouldn't enjoy a moment's rest until you had returned it. "'It would only add to your embarrassment. "'There is another way of freeing yourself. "'But I have no money at all,' insisted my grandmother. "'There is no need of money. "'Listen to me.' "'The Count then told her a secret which any of us would give a good deal to know. "'The young gamesters were all attention. "'Tomsky lit his pipe, took a few whiffs.' and continued. The next evening, Grandmother appeared at Versailles at the Queen's gaming table. The Duke of Orleans was the dealer. Grandmother made some excuse for not having brought any money and began to punt. She chose three cards in succession again and again, winning every time, and was soon out of debt. A fable, remarked Herman. Perhaps the cards were marked. I hardly think so, replied Tomsky with an air of importance. So you have a grandmother who knows three winning cards, and you haven't found out the magic secret. I must say I have not. She had four sons, one of them being my father, 
all of whom are devoted to play. She never told the secret to one of them. But my uncle told me this much on his word of honour. Chaplitsky, who died in poverty after having squandered millions, lost at one time at play nearly 300,000 roubles. He was desperate, and grandmother took pity on him. She told him the three cards, making him swear never to use them again. He returned to the game, staked 50,000 roubles on each card, and came out ahead, after paying his debts. As day was dawning, the party now broke up, each one draining his glass and taking his leave. The countess, Anna Fedorovna, was seated before her mirror in the dressing-room. Three women were assisting her toilet. The old countess no longer made the slightest pretensions to beauty, but she still clung to all the habits of her youth and spent as much time at her toilet as she had done sixty years before. At the window, a young girl, her ward, sat at her needlework. "'Good afternoon, grandmother,' cried a young officer who had just entered the room. "'I have come to ask a favour of you.' "'What, Pavel? I want to be allowed to present one of my friends to you, and to take you to the ball on Tuesday night. Take me to the ball and present him to me there.' After a few more remarks, the officer walked up to the window, Willisaveta Ivanova sat. "'Whom do you wish to present?' asked the girl. "'Narumov. Do you know him?' "'No. Is he a soldier?' "'Yes. An engineer?' "'No. Why do you ask?' The girl smiled and made no reply. Pavel Tomsky took his leave and left to herself. Lisaveta glanced out of the window. Soon a young officer appeared at the corner of the street. The girl blushed and bent her head low over her canvas. This appearance of the officer had become a daily occurrence. The man was totally unknown to her, and, as she was not accustomed to coquetting with the soldiers she saw on the street, she hardly knew how to explain his presence. His persistence finally roused an interest entirely strange to her. One day she even ventured to smile upon her admirer, for such he seemed to be. The reader need hardly be told that the officer was no other than Herman, the would-be gambler, whose imagination had been strongly excited by the story told by Tomsky of the three magic cards. Ah, he thought, if the old countess would only reveal the secret to me, why not try to win her goodwill and appeal to her sympathy? With this idea in mind, he took up his daily station before the house, watching the pretty face at the window and trusting to fate to bring about the desired acquaintance. One day, as Lisaveta was standing on the pavement about to enter the carriage after the countess, she felt herself jostled, and a note was thrust into her hand. Turning, she saw the young officer at her elbow. As quick as thought, she put the note in her glove and entered the carriage. On her return from the drive, she hastened to her chamber to read the missive in a state of excitement mingled with fear. It was a tender and respectful declaration of affection, copied word for word from a German novel. Of this fact, Lisa was, of course, ignorant. The young girl was much impressed by the missive, but she felt that the writer must not be encouraged. She therefore wrote a few lines of explanation, and at the first opportunity dropped it with the letter out of the window. The officer hastily crossed the street, picked up the papers, and entered a shop to read them. In no wise daunted by this rebuff, he found the opportunity to send her another note in a few days. He received no reply, but evidently understanding the female heart, he persevered, begging for an interview. He was rewarded at last by the following. Tonight we go to the ambassador's ball. We shall remain until two o'clock. 
I can arrange for a meeting in this way. After our departure, the servants will probably all go out or go to sleep. At half-past eleven, enter the vestibule boldly, and if you see anyone, inquire for the countess. If not, ascend the stairs, turn to the left, and go on until you come to a door which opens into her bedchamber. Enter this room, and behind a screen you will find another door leading to a corridor. From this, a spiral staircase leads to my sitting-room. I shall expect to find you there on my return. Herman trembled like a leaf as the appointed hour drew near. He obeyed instructions fully, and, as he met no one, he reached the old lady's bedchamber without difficulty. Instead of going out of the small door behind the screen, however, he concealed himself in a closet to await the return of the old countess. The hours dragged slowly by. At last he heard the sound of wheels. Immediately lamps were lighted, the servants began moving about. Finally, the old woman tottered into her room, completely exhausted. Her women removed her wraps and proceeded to get her in readiness for the night. Herman watched the proceedings with a curiosity not unmingled with superstitious fear. When at last she was attired in cap and gown, the old woman looked less uncanny than when she wore her ball dress of blue brocade. She sat down in an easy chair beside a table, as she was in the habit of doing before retiring, and her women withdrew. As the old lady sat swaying to and fro, seemingly oblivious to her surroundings, Herman crept out of his hiding place. At the slight noise the old woman opened her eyes and gazed at the intruder with a half-dazed expression. "'Have no fear, I beg of you,' said Herman, in a calm voice. "'I have not come to harm you, but to ask a favour of you instead.' The Countess looked at him in silence, seemingly without comprehending him. Herman thought she might be deaf, so he put his lips close to her ear repeated his remark. The listener remained perfectly mute. "'You could make my fortune without it costing you anything,' pleaded the young man. "'Only tell me the three cards which are sure to win, and—' Herman paused, as the old woman opened her lips, as if about to speak. "'It was only a jest, I swear to you. It was only a jest,' came from the withered lips. "'There was no jesting about it. Remember Chaplitsky, who, thanks to you, was able to pay his debts.' An expression of interior agitation passed over the face of the old woman, and she relapsed into her former apathy. "'Will you tell me the names of the magic cards or not?' asked Herman after a pause. There was no reply. The young man then drew a pistol from his pocket, exclaiming, "'You old witch, I'll force you to tell me!' At the sight of the weapon, the countess gave a second sign of life. She threw back her head and put out a hand, as if to protect herself. Then they dropped and she sat motionless. Herman grasped her arm roughly and was about to renew his threats when he saw that she was dead. Seated in her room, still in her ball dress, Lisaveta gave herself up to her reflections. She had expected to find a young officer there, but she felt relieved to see that he was not. Strangely enough, that very night at the ball, Tomsky had rallied her about her preference for the young officer, assuring her that he knew no more than she supposed he did. "'Of whom are you speaking?' she'd asked in alarm, fearing her adventure had been discovered. "'Of the remarkable man,' was a reply. "'His name's Herman.' Lisa made no reply. "'This Herman,' continued Tomsky, "'is a romantic character. "'He has the profile of a Napoleon "'and the heart of a Mephistopheles. "'It's said he has at least three crimes on his conscience, "'but how pale you are! "'It's only a slight headache. "'But why do you talk to me of this Herman?' 
because I believe he has serious intentions concerning you. Where has he seen me? At church, perhaps, or on the street? The conversation was interrupted at this point to the great regret of the young girl. The words of Tomsky made a deep impression upon her, and she realised how imprudently she had acted. She was thinking of all of this and a great deal more when the door of her apartment suddenly opened and Herman stood before her. She drew back at sight of him, trembling violently. "'Where have you been?' she asked in a frightened whisper. "'In the bedchamber of the Countess.' "'She's dead,' was the calm reply. "'My God, what are you saying?' cried the girl. "'Furthermore, I believe that I was the cause of her death.' The words of Tomsky flashed through Lisa's mind. Herman sat down and told her all. She listened with a feeling of terror and disgust. So those passionate letters, that audacious pursuit, were not the result of tenderness and love. It was money that he desired. The poor girl felt that she had, in a sense, been an accomplice in the death of her benefactress. She began to weep bitterly. Herman regarded her in silence. "'You are a monster!' exclaimed Lisa, drying her eyes. I didn't intend to kill her, and the pistol wasn't even loaded. How are you going to get out of the house? inquired Lisa. It's nearly daylight. I intended to show you the way to a secret staircase while the Countess was asleep, as we would have had to cross her chamber. Now I'm afraid to do so. Direct me, and I'll find the way alone, replied Herman. She gave him minute instructions and the key with which to open the street door. The young man pressed a cold, inert hand then went out. The death of the Countess had surprised no one, as it had long been expected. Her funeral was attended by every one of note in the vicinity. Herman mingled with the throng without attracting any especial attention. After all the friends had taken their last look at the dead face, the young man approached the bier. He prostrated himself on the cold floor and remained motionless for a long time. He rose at last with a face almost as pale as that of the corpse itself, and went up the steps to look into the casket. As he looked down, it seemed to him that the rigid face returned his glance, mockingly, closing one eye. He turned abruptly away, made a false step, and fell to the floor. He was picked up, and at the same moment Lisavetta was carried out in a faint. Herman did not recover his usual composure during the entire day. He dined alone, at an out-of-the-way restaurant and drank a great deal in the hope of stifling his emotion. The wine only served to stimulate his imagination. He returned home and threw himself down on his bed without undressing. During the night he awoke with a start. The moon shone into his chamber, making everything plainly visible. Someone looked in at the window, then quickly disappeared. He paid no attention to this, but soon he heard the vestibule door open, he thought it was his orderly returning late, drunk as usual. The step was an unfamiliar one, and he heard the shuffling sound of loose slippers. The door of his room opened, and a woman in white entered. She came close to the bed, and the terrified man recognized the countess. "'I have come to you against my will,' she said abruptly. "'But I was commanded to grant your request.' The three, seven, and ace in succession are the magic cards. Twenty-four hours must elapse before the use of each card, and after the three have been used, you must never play again. The phantom then turned and walked away. Herman heard the outside door close and again saw the form pass the window. 
He rose and went out into the hall where his orderly lay asleep on the floor. The door was closed. Finding no trace of a visitor, he returned to his room, lit his candle, and wrote down what he had just heard. Two fixed ideas cannot exist in the brain at the same time any more than two bodies can occupy the same point in space. The three, seven and ace soon chased away the thoughts of the dead woman and all other thoughts from the brain of the young officer. All his ideas merged into a single one, how to turn to advantage the secret paid for so dearly. He even thought of resigning his commission and going to Paris to force a fortune from conquered fate. Chance rescued him from his embarrassment. Chekalinsky, a man who had passed his whole life at cards, opened a club at St. Petersburg. His long experience secured for him the confidence of his companions, and his hospitality and genial humour conciliated society. The gilded youth flocked around him, neglecting society, preferring the charms of Pharaoh to those of their sweethearts. Narumov invited Herman to accompany him to the club, and the young man accepted the invitation only too willingly. The two officers found the apartments full. Generals and statesmen played whist. Young men lounged on sofas eating ices or smoking. In the principal salon stood a long table at which about twenty men sat playing pharaoh, the host of the establishment being the banker. He was a man of about sixty, grey-haired and respectable. His ruddy face shone with genial humour, his eyes sparkled, and a constant smile hovered around his lips. Narumov presented Herman. The host gave him a cordial handshake, begged him not to stand upon ceremony, and returned to his dealing. More than thirty cards were already on the table. Chekalinsky paused after each coup to allow the punters time to recognise their gains or losses, politely answering all questions and constantly smiling. After the deal was over, the cards were shuffled and the game began again. Permit me to choose a card, said Herman, stretching out his hand over the head of a portly gentleman to reach a livret. The banker bowed without replying. Herman chose a card and wrote the amount of his stake upon it with a piece of chalk. "'How much is that?' asked the banker. "'Excuse me, sir, but I do not see well.' Forty thousand roubles,' said Herman coolly. All eyes were instantly turned upon the speaker. "'He's lost his wits,' thought Narumov. "'Allow me to observe,' said Chekalinsky with his eternal smile, "'that your stake is um, excessive.' "'What of it?' replied Herman, nettled. "'Do you accept it or not?' The banker nodded in assent. I have only to remind you that the cash will be necessary. Of course your word is good. But in order to keep the confidence of my patrons, I prefer the ready money. Herman took a bank cheque from his pocket and handed it to his host. The latter examined it attentively, then laid it on the card chosen. He began dealing to the right a nine, to the left a three. The three wins, said Herman, showing the card he held. The three. A murmur ran through the crowd. Chekalinsky frowned for a second only. Then his smile returned. He took a roll of bank bills from his pocket and counted out the required sum. Herman received it and at once left the table. The next evening saw him at the place again. Everyone eyed him curiously, and Chekalinsky greeted him cordially. He selected his card and placed upon it his fresh stake. The banker began dealing to the right a nine, to the left. A seven. Herman then showed his card a seven spot. The onlookers exclaimed and the host was visibly disturbed. 
he counted out 94,000 roubles and passed them to Hermann, who accepted them without showing the least surprise, and at once withdrew. The following evening he went again. His appearance was a signal for the cessation of all occupation, everyone being eager to watch the developments of events. He selected his card, an ace. The dealing began to the right, a queen. To the left, an ace. The ace wins, remarked Hermann, turning up his card without glancing at it. Your queen is killed, remarked Chekolinsky quietly. Hermann trembled. Looking down, he saw not the ace he had selected, but the queen of spades. Hermann trembled. Looking down, he saw not the ace he had selected, but the queen of spades. He could scarcely believe his eyes. It seemed impossible that he could have made such a mistake. As he stared at the card, it seemed to him that the queen winked one eye at him mockingly. The old woman, he exclaimed involuntarily. The croupier raked in the money while he looked on in stupid terror. When he left the table, all made way for him to pass. The cards were shuffled, and the gambling went on. Herman became a lunatic. He was confined at the hospital in Obukov, where he spoke to no one, but kept constantly murmuring in a monotonous tone, The three, seven, ace, the three, seven, queen. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? That was The Queen of Spades by Alexander Pushkin, Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin. And he was a Russian poet, playwright and novelist, was born in 1799 in Moscow and died, aged only 37, in St. Petersburg as a result of a duel that he fought with his uh, brother-in-law, who had an unfair advantage because his brother-in-law was a professional soldier and Pushkin was a poet. So, you know, the pen and the sword. I hope he didn't go into battle with a pen, taking it, you know, that pen and sword thing, literally. It was a great shame because Pushkin is, was a great, in his uh, short life, he accomplished a, a lot of uh, literary work and was very talented. His great-grandfather was a prince from the Cameroon, a son of a prince from the Cameroon who was captured by the Ottoman Turks and who was then presented by them to Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia. His grandfather, great-grandfather, Gannibal, became a favourite of Peter the Great and rose to great rank in the court and was a famous military engineer. And Pushkin was also a bit of a, a man for liberty and he didn't believe in the autocratic rule of the Tsars and so it, that ended up with him being uh, watched and followed around by the secret police, the Russian secret police, and being exiled for a while. Obviously, he came back in time to die at the duel. He really is a very talented writer, and I think when we look at the Queen of Spades story, we see that it's very tight, it's very tightly written. There's really nothing superfluous about it. Every scene and every incident is necessary. He doesn't spend any time describing things that are of no purpose, you know. The first scene, for example, we see Herman sitting back and while Tomsky's talking about his grandmother and the cards, the gamblers, the soldiers are sitting there and how his grandmother has this secret from the Comte de Saint-Germain, this uh, fantastic figure who has magic powers. Herman doesn't say anything and they say, oh, he's quiet, you know, he's German, he's economical. 
But we realise later on that's because he was brooding about all of this. We don't get an inkling in the first scene about his true nature, but then later on it becomes clear. And he really isn't a very nice man at all. It's implied rather than spoken, but we see it. So it's showing, not telling. Herman then starts to stalk this poor Lisa and he completely deceives her. And he says one time, you know, that uh, when his first attempt is kicked back, he persists and Pushkin says, knowing the female heart. And I guess that's a suggestion that to all you boys out there that, uh, you know, if you're turned down by some lady, you just got to keep trying. I'm not sure that's good advice these days. I think you could end up in court. You know, it's harassment, so don't do it. So naughty Pushkin, naughty Herman, in fact. And Herman is, we see he's a total scoundrel. He's got no interest in the girl. It's all deceit. And eventually, through his persistence, he kind of wins around a little bit and she makes arrangements to let him into the house. And he doesn't bother going to see her. He goes to see the old countess undress again. What's going on here? This guy's sick. And then he frightens the poor old lady. Up until this point, it's not supernatural. It's just a tale of disgustingness. And it reminds me of um, The Housekeeper by Marjorie Bowen that we read. And they were pretty horrible too. Living around the same time as this, I don't know if that was what was going on in those days. Horribleness. It's, it's not a supernatural story. Then he sees the coffin and he faints. He must have some conscience and he's not a total psychopath. The old lady comes to him. I think it's very interesting in that she doesn't want to come to him and she's been commanded to come and give him these secrets. So who commanded her and why? And I think from the very outset, when we see the end, Herman's been set up, you know? And again, I, I keep going on about the morality of ghost stories. Ghosts exist in, in a lot of stories to as judges, juries, and possibly executioners. When somebody does wrong, a character does wrong, the ghost is there to set the wrong right. You know, this is a really old theme, uh, and that is what happens. I was reading an analysis of this story. It talks about the numbers. So we have the three, the seven, and the ace as the cards, and it's the third. And the number three is important throughout the story, and it's the third turn when he turns the card over. It's so well done the first time he wins, the second time. The third time he's so confident he doesn't even look at his card. He just presumes he's got the ace. And then, your queen is killed, sir. So. There we have it, the old lady in black in her coffin comes back, winks at him both times. So it's a lovely, neat little story, and I really enjoyed reading it. I just, when I was doing my notes, I just um, came across some other things. So the Count de Saint-Germain, he was a real historical figure who lived in the 18th century, and one story claims that he was the son of a prince of Transylvania. So there we go, links there as well to the old Dracula myth, although not in this story. And it said he was educated at San Germano in Italy by the Medicis. Later on in the 19th century, the whole thing was debunked because he became quite a famous character, really. And he said he wasn't actually that at all. He was a, a guy who was of Jewish origin from the Alsatian provinces on the Rhine, you know, the German-speaking part of France now, or still bits of German spoken there. San Germano is supposed to have discovered the elixir of life or the philosopher's stone which is the same thing and to be 500 years old and this puts him within the realm of alchemy and by the 18th century most of alchemy is gone and we're starting to move in that that current is moving into the freemasons and the illuminati and people like that but he's he's one of these magical figures he was certainly an adventurer it reminds me of edward kelly a little bit who wasn't as aristocratic who was john d's sidekick 
but that's for another story. But he's got magical powers by uh, rumour anyway. He was a Jacobite spy arrested in London. He later turns up at the court of Louis XV. Then he's in Holland doing a bit of spying uh, during the height of the Seven Years' War. So he's an interesting character and you can see why he got the reputation of knowing secrets. The card game Pharaoh, I think I pronounced it Pharaoh to begin with, known as Pharaoh, spelt like the Egyptian Pharaoh as well, was a, a big gambling game before poker. It was the gambling game of choice before poker. And as far as I understand it, um, you have a, your cards and the banker has a pack of cards and he draws one, which is his card, and the other one is your card. Now, if, if the player's card has got the same number as you have in your hand, so in this case, I think the first one was a three, wasn't it? So he puts a three, the player's card a three, your man Herman has got a three, bang, wins, and you get, exa- it's one for one basis, so if you bet, I think, 40,000 rubles, you get 40,000 rubles, you know. That's how it plays. Pretty simple game, but um, it was apparently very easily rigged and so um, was superseded by poker, which is harder to rig. Queen of Spades, symbolically, you know, there's a thing called cartomancy where people read playing cards and she's supposed to be intelligence, but she's also equivalent to the Queen of Swords in the tarot pack. And the Queen of Swords is a conniving, cold lady who probably doesn't mean any good. When I used to do, we'd have tarot readings, Queen of Swords would turn up and I clearly knew it was my ex-mother-in-law who fitted those characteristics exactly. So that's that. So hope you enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed doing it. I'm changing microphones. I'm, I'm trading down. This is my cheap microphone. I don't know if you can hear the difference in quality. Probably you can't, but I can. I found out a lovely uh, a pack of cards when I was researching for images. So if you want to have a look at the link in the show notes, it'll take you to this gorgeous pack of cards. It's kind of Victorian seance cards, but they're lovely, lovely done. Music is by the Hartwood Institute. They've just, Jonathan Sharp, who I hang around with, he's just released another album, which is gorgeous. But f- check them out. I really like Jonathan's stuff. I need to thank my patrons. I've had such a great response recently. So a big shout out to my patrons, Donna Constanza, Emma, Kate Unwin, Margaret Walker and Sandra Vale. So um, it's a strange thing having people who, who like you enough to support you. So I really do appreciate it. So thanks again to Donna, Emma, Kate, Margaret and Sandra. Also people have been buying me coffee. So that's fantastic because as I say, when I'm doing this sometimes, I'm drinking a lot of coffee now. I probably shouldn't drink as much, but there we are. Okay. My call to action we changed our podcasting host to Captivate FN. I'm very pleased with their support so far, so shout out to them as well. Their advice is we have a call to action at the end of every episode. So you know normally I just kind of lapse into meaningless rambling and it fades away. So this is a call to action. And the call to action is, if all of you who listen to this episode go and give me a rating on your podcasting, or whatever you listen to it through, you know, Stitcher or... Apple or Spotify. I don't know if you can do a rating on Spotify. If you could go and do that, that would be fantastic. If you could just rate it on whichever one you do. And that gives it a real lift. Only one call to action, they say. I'm like tempted to go, well, yeah, have a look at the website as well. Ghostpod.org. Ghostpod.org. And I lapse into rambling. So it is time for me to say farewell until the next time.